Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Charting Queer Health, a podcast at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. As always, on behalf of Howard Brown Health in Chicago, I'm your host, Matt Lusky. I identify as a cis, white, gay man. I'm a Chicago resident, but most importantly, I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Joining us today is Joey Mettler. Now, Joey, you've been on the show before, but uh, for people that haven't uh, heard your original episode, would you mind introducing yourself, your role here at Howard Brown, and your pronouns for us? Yeah, glad to be back. Thank you so much. So I'm Joey Mettler. I'm a licensed clinical social worker at Howard Brown Health. I use he, him pronouns, and I am a supervising behavioral health clinician on the behavioral health training and development team. Gotcha. So again, uh, a long title like it was last time, but uh, you are uniquely suited for uh, this podcast episode, I think it was actually, um, you brought it to my attention last time you were here recording. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about chemsex, which is short for chemical sex, I'm assuming. Pretty much. Um, uh, yep. And uh, so may, tell me if this advice, uh, if this um, disclaimer is warranted that uh, this episode might have some more graphic depictions of sex and or uh, substance use. So people listening might want to like just make a note of that. Uh, is that is that worth it? I don't honestly even know what we're going to get into on this episode. So, yeah, pretty much we're talking about sex and drugs. Okay, yeah. So so keep that in mind if you're listening and that's not um, what you're here for. Then uh, yeah, be advised. So yeah, we're talking about um, chem sex. So let's just dive right in. Can you give us uh, a definition? What is it? Why is it a point of interest for us today? Yeah, so it's a point of interest, particularly in my own clinical work, because nobody really talks about it. Um, you know, when I do presentations at local schools and I talk about substance use, it's the one wild card area where everyone goes, huh? So I thank you for having me here today so we can talk about this. In a nutshell, what it is is intentional use of substances while engaging in consensual sexual activities. Um of course, intentional use and uh, consensual being keywords in this. Mm-hmm. A little bit longer of a definition is um, the use of certain substances immediately before or after sexual activities to facilitate, prolong, and or to intensify the sexual experience. Gotcha. Okay, so uh, on, on first listen, when I had kind of just like did a preliminary Google of this, um, I immediately thought of like, uh, maybe more intense substances or, or you know, uh, quote unquote, like scarier things. But then I was like, does Viagra or like Cialis count as Chemsex? Because technically that's something you would use to like heighten or intensify a sexual experience. So I'm thinking that there's probably more shades uh, and, and um, intricacies to this than there may appear at first glance. Is that Absolutely. reasonable to say? Yeah. And, you know, the concept of what is chemsex really kind of changes based on the community that you're talking to, even the time period that we're in and all that. I mean, it's been around for a while, this mm-hmm. concept of linking substance use with sex. It's been around. Yeah. Um, but the way it's done, the way that communities gravitate towards certain drugs or substances versus others, that's the that's where things get interesting. Yeah. I, I had my next question. Do we prefer to describe the to describe them as substances or or drugs or or something else? Not necessarily for like stigmatization purposes, but like it's not always just drugs if we want to use that word. I mean it could be other stuff, right? I yeah, I really like to use the word substances. Yeah. Um I've already said the word drug a couple of times and all that. 
Um, it's really interchangeable depending on, you know, who you're talking to. What I like about substances is that it has less of that history of stigma yeah. towards it. So I, you know, when I'm actively engaging in a conversation, I'm more likely to say substances. Um, drugs, I think more of that definition of something that's used to like treat or um, reduce the side effects of some kind of health condition. I think substances is a little bit more broad and it opens up the category of how things could be a little bit more broad in terms of that sex um, as opposed to like specifically looking at a drug. Gotcha. Okay. So I, like I, I've said on other episodes, I like to get our vocabulary straight to know uh, kind of how to discuss the, the, the topic in the first place. So um, you said the, the definition of chemsex kind of varies on what uh, community it's associated with or you're referring to. What, what communities do we think of primarily when we think of chemsex? When we're using the actual word chemsex, it is more likely that we're thinking about the community of men who have sex with men. That's pretty much where that term got coined from, um, especially with um, sex-seeking apps, things like that. That's where that really that term came from. Before, again, this behavior has seen in other communities throughout history, um, but it's never been known as chemsex up until more recently. Yeah. And it, typically it's also because of the use of chemicals like meth or G, like GHB or GBL. Um, that's where you get a little bit more of that chem influence into it. Um, like I said, you know, other communities and, and uh, times in our, uh, our history, you know, other groups have used like ecstasy or K or poppers or... Um, you know, other hallucinogens, things like that. But when we really think of chemsex, we're really thinking about men who have sex with men. Yeah, okay. Um, you said that chemsex has been around for, you know, a while. What What are maybe some of the earliest examples of it or examples that people might not think about uh, going back to, uh, in history? Sure. So, you know, ever since, you know, substances have been around in sex, we've been putting them together as humans. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm going to use the term chem loosely because any substance is creating a chemical reaction in our brain, kind of like when we talked about the opioids um, during our last yeah. podcast. So the reason why um, we can look at this a little bit more broad is that, like, say, for instance, thinking back to, like, the 1920s when cocaine was all throughout Hollywood and right. things like that. That was simulant-based uh, sex, much like meth is today kind of a thing. Um, and so because there's that chemical reaction, I would say loosely that is chemsex kind of a thing. Interesting. Um, I'll even say that in, that's incorporated into like LSD, mushrooms, things like that. Even if they're not um, by definition a chemical, because they release a chemical um, release in the brain, that's why I can say loosely we can look at it as that. Interesting. And, and in the same way that when we talk about harm reduction, uh, there's, you know, you can kind of extend that definition like seatbelts are technically harm reduction and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. Is, is uh, like, would a lube that has like a chemical in it that like, you know, um, has like a icy hot type feeling, whatever, would that be considered a chemsex? Because technically it's a chemical that's like heightening it or is that a stretch? I'd say that's a little bit more of a stretch. I, right. I'm looking more towards the neurochem. Neurochem. Okay. Yeah. We wanted to get that distinction. So it's not necessarily like uh, topical or like physical or anything. It's more of how your brain functions, the neurochem, things like that. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Because so this kind of ties in later when we talk about like why people engage into it. That's yeah. kind of where that's coming from. Okay. Cool. So we know it's 
historically, uh, and I guess currently probably more popular with um, men who have sex with men, um, is there a, a reason for that or a reason why other communities don't engage in it as much? I think if we're looking at specifically this type of chem sex, with men who have sex with men, there are two main components that really stand out. Trauma associated with sex and sexuality, and also just the poor socialized and normalized um, health norms in our community. So with trauma, you know, in my clinical work of those who have lived through the HIV AIDS era, they have carried so much internalized trauma around that. Um, sex in our community has always been vilified and demified, right? I mean, that's been forever. Um, but because of that era and the loss and the deep-rooted hatred and stigma towards sex and uh, the death in the community, th that stuck with people. Um, even, you know, younger folk who didn't experience that coming out, you know, that whole um, negative viewpoint of healthy sex and yeah. things like that. Like sex ed, healthy sex ed doesn't really exist throughout this country. So people in our community are constantly being raised with this, you know, stigma around who they are, what they're doing with other people. And so that carries into sex, that carries into that ability to be vulnerable, to have fun with sex. Sex is supposed to be fun, right? And so that trauma really kind of sits there. And the other part with this kind of the sexualized um, norms in our community, if you pick up any advertisement in our community, you're going to see advertisements about body, about um, surgeries for beauty, about what is, um, you know, Steamworks doing with its you know, party this weekend and all right. that, right? And so these advertisements are proliferated throughout our community, showing very fit people, um, people who are non-disabled, people who are very attractive, right? And so those of us in the community who don't see ourselves in those advertisements, there's that loss. There's that wantingness to be able to belong into that. And so sometimes chemsex is a way to do that because the nature of the use is to reduce those inhibitions, to reduce that trauma. So you can actually engage in sex with somebody. So I think those are, you know, trauma and this way that we look at healthy bodies in our community, I think they really generate this desire to use because they want to escape all that in sex. Yeah, yeah, those are, that's, two phenomenal points and, and things that I honestly didn't consider uh, in my prep for this episode, um, especially the the point about kind of the internalized homophobia and the, and the trauma that kind of comes with uh, engaging in sex because uh, like even myself growing up dabbling on Grindr for the first time, it's one thing to, you know, talk to somebody on Grindr, but it's another thing to actually hook up with them. And almost always it was like I had to be out drunk with my friends and then finally I would work up enough courage to, to actually go do it. And so, so I, I can understand that desire to kind of be in a different frame of mind in order to, to finally do sex, so to speak. How does one, are there, I don't know how to phrase this correctly, but are there like certain paths to engaging in chem sex? Like what, like how does one, go about it or get into it or, you know, because when people talk about not to use a word that we said we're not going to use, but uh, drugs, um, poorly informed people a lot of times talk about like gateway drugs and things. Um, how does somebody, do, how, does that logic apply to this at all? Or am I being a buffoon here with that? No, I think there are some unique pathways here. What I typically see in my clinical work, um, the two that would really stand out right now to me are 
those that experience that sense of toxic masculinity mm -hmm. in our community, these are the individuals that use meth, let's say, um, on a near daily basis because it gives them the energy to go to the, to the gym for hours. And mm -hmm. so they can build that body that's in every single advertisement in our newspapers, right? Um, and so you're getting used to this system in your body of being flooded with this dopamine release and it feels good. And then it's just a natural pathway towards sex. Gotcha. Um, the other one I hear, which is the more um, saddening tale, is the likelihood of someone being given a needle of meth during a party and they weren't aware of what was in it. They weren't aware of what it was going to do. I hear that story more often than any other story in, my, in the 10 years that I've been in this kind of work. So it's, again, that socialized norms that are out there like, hey, we're having a good party. This, just take this. It's yeah. good for you, you know? Yeah. But it's so highly addictive. It is unlike any other drug that I've personally seen. The psychoactive component to it latches onto people. And mm -hmm. so addiction is a lot more probable compared to most other drugs. Yeah. Um, th that made me think of, um, I was watching Trixie Katya's YouTube uh, show on my uh, lunch break earlier today. And uh, there's a quote that Katya says about uh, drug use where she, she said she knew the first time immediately, like 30 seconds after doing it, she's like, oh, this is going to be a big problem for the rest of my life. Um, so I can see mm. how it could take one incident, yeah, at a party where somebody you trust gave you something uh, or even something you didn't trust and you were, you know, were just in a situation where you weren't able to discern. Uh, and suddenly it's going to be a factor for the rest of your life. So yeah. um, that in mind, what are some important misconceptions about chemsex? Um, I kind of laid out some of them already, uh, but I feel like this is a topic where if I told, you know, my small town family back home, they'd have a lot of thoughts uh, right away. What are some of those and how do we debunk them? Yeah. And that's a great question because it's just kind of like what you said. When people ask me about my work and I say, you know, I work a lot around, you know, G use and meth use, people's eyes, they start fluttering. They don't know what to say. But mm -hmm. when I talk about cocaine or alcohol, it's like, oh, okay, that's just a normal day for anybody. Yeah. So um, with, with these um, substances, you know, and the action of chemsex, um, the two main misconceptions uh, that come for me are the ways that uh, sex can actually be very consensual and controlled during the engagement, even though the substance is present, and that the substance can be used in a safer way. So just because somebody uses doesn't mean that they have an addiction, that it doesn't mean that they meet criteria for a substance use disorder. Um, the question is, how does it impact their life and their ability to navigate it, right? And so when you are working with a substance like meth or G or things like that within chemsex, it is possible to set limits. It is possible to get consent to lay out ways that you're not going to become overamped. Um, that's kind of like the overdose version with mm -hmm. simulant use um, or create a situation where maybe somebody G's out where they become unconscious. Um, so just because there's a substance there doesn't mean that it's all just free willy milly, that everybody's just using whatever kind of a thing. Um, same thing with the sex is that very often people are concerned, well, if there's a substance there, you are not in the full um, orientation of mind to consent to everything. Well, yes, there is an altered perception that happens from substance use. What we can do about that is have that ongoing conversation throughout it and make plans, um, which I can definitely go into a little bit more about ways that we can create that safety. So 
most people out there who are engaged in this know the risks. They know what the psychoactive drug can do to them, and they know how that can change consent and all that. But just like in any group of people, there are always going to be those that aren't necessarily focused so much on that, or perhaps they're putting some of that aside because they're looking for a particular rush, a particular danger and risk that they're looking for. Interesting. So you said there's there's particular um, you know g- guidelines, or you can kind of discuss beforehand um, uh, ways to kind of negate the negative um, possible results of this. Uh, what are those? What do those look like, and how do you establish that with somebody who may not have the same idea of what the encounter is going to be? Yeah. So first and foremost, it starts off with having a conversation of what is it that you're looking for and what is it that you've experienced on this before? You know, some people experience these drugs in different ways. And so we have to be able to know if we're using this, is that more likely to make you more paranoid or more sedate, um, you know, sedate? Mm -hmm. So starting off with that is the, the first block. The next one is I suggest the clients actually make a legit contract where we write out what is it all that we're consenting to in terms of behavior and use throughout the engagement. So if let's say we're planning on being together for like an hour and a half or two hours at 30 minutes, what do we want to be doing Mm -hmm. Um, at a half hour, uh, at an hour, what do we want to be doing in terms of both sexual activity and use? Now I know that some of the criticism for this idea is that like, I'm taking a little bit of the fun away, the Mm -hmm. little impulsivity of the sex. I get it. And I'm doing that beforehand because once we have the plan established, then we got something that we can go on and then we can have fun with it. Mm -hmm. But creating this plan so that way consent is negotiated constantly is paramount because Mm -hmm. consent can easily go out the window with these types of drugs. The other thing I like to suggest is set a timer on your phone for like, let's say every 20 minutes or half hour. Once that timer goes off, everything stops immediately and consent is rediscussed. So at least there's that reminder of saying, hey, even if we're feeling really good and um, aware of everything, let's still have a conversation right now. Are we still okay with where things are going? Yeah, I I love that. And the idea of of checking in and having a roadmap because not to like uh, draw an incorrect comparison, but I shoot uh, photography and videography for weddings and brides always come to me and they're talking about planning and making a schedule for the day. And I always say like, it's good to have it in mind, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's something to follow and an idea, but if the schedule gets broken you know, it's fine as long as everyone's on the same page and everyone's happy with it. Yes. I can kind of see that applying to this where, yeah, if you're planning out an encounter, you know, you don't have to have a stopwatch out and be like at 30 minutes, we should be doing this, but you have to say like, Hey, we wanted to be doing this. Is it okay that we're still doing this, et cetera, et cetera. So it gives you the roadmap to kind of compare what you're doing against and, and reevaluate. So I love that, that plan. Um, the interesting part to me is the, the consent, um, factor, because I think everybody's had it, uh, having, you know, casual sexual encounters after drinking where you you know you wake up the next day and things are a little hazy and you're like mm-hmm. I, 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 I think I consented to that or you know you're a little bit regretful and it's like you know I'm regretful now was I regretful then did that make my consent invalid like there's a lot of gray area there um that I think casual I don't know do we count alcohol use as come sex chemical influence on the brain I'd right say loosely okay. it could be applied yeah so i think when when you think about it that way everybody has probably engaged in a little bit of bordering on chemsex so how do you how do you 
I don't know, because I, I love the roadmap plan, but, like, if I was going to Charlie's and I wanted to hook up with somebody, I don't have time to yell over the speakers, like, in, tw- you know, an hour, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and, and for some people, that's kind of the fun is, like, the, the impulsivity of it. Yeah. Is there a way to, to do that safely and still know that you have consent? Or is that just kind of the risk people assume when they have casual encounters like that? I'd say both. I mean, I think there's just that inherent risk that we're consenting to in a way in the, in that type of an encounter. Yeah. Um, and I get it. And that's part of the rush mm-hmm. for it. Right. At the same time, I think then it behooves us to think about what we can do that doesn't require the negotiation with another person. So maybe that's um, prep, you know, that's, that's a way that we can kind of navigate some potential infection. Um, you know, making sure that we have lube on us, um, even a little pocket pack, um, just in case we're inserting mm-hmm. anything. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have to make some space for the conversation to consent, knowing that if we are going into an encounter with someone that we don't really know, there's always a risk that somebody says, I don't care what mm-hmm. your consent is. You yeah. know, and that does happen in our community quite often, unfortunately. So, it's a lot about trust at the end of the day. It's about that relationship of trust that as humans, we agree that these are the bounds that we're agreeing to and we're not going to cross them. Yeah. I was going to say, I can see the potential. There's just so many moving parts when it comes to sex on its own. And then when you add in substances on top of that and another person, uh, you know, it'd be one thing if you were you know, engaging in chem sex with a, a trusted partner or something. But if it's somebody off grinder that you haven't met, uh, there's you're placing a lot of trust in the other person's hands. I'm interested in kind of thinking about, you know, there are people that would say that, you know, if you're having chem sex, it's not, you know, real, like true actual sex and that, you know, your your sex life is faulty in some way because you need to amplify it. That's kind of, I mean, we discussed the reasons why somebody might be engaging in chemsex kind of already. What would you say to people that are like purists in that way that don't think that there should be any reason for engaging in this? Because hmm. I could see some people being like, you know, you know, if you need X, Y, and Z to, to get off, then, you know, it's not, um, are you really even having sex or like, you know, things like that. Like maybe mm-hmm. that's poorly worded, but I... To those people, how would you respond? And if somebody feels that way and they are engaging in chemsex, like, I don't like that I have to do this, how does one kind of take steps back from it? Because I could I could also see, you know, if, if you've been getting off a certain way for so long, how do you reprogram your brain to to get enough stimulus from, you know, other substances or, or you know, no substances at all? How do you mm-hmm. take steps back? I don't know. Yeah, that's a great um two-parter here and i think (laughs) um starting with the first one here i think people viewing it from the outside have to understand that sex is one of the most vulnerable things that we can do as humans with each other and it does take us to these spaces that we carry with us after it's done you know once the act is done it's not like everything is set back you know to where it was before so when you are living a life that is been constantly feeding you messages that you're unpure that you are a sinner that your sex is wrong. Some people need something to get through that in order to be able to have sex with another individual. So I think, you know, this idea of being trauma-informed to understand that some people use substances as a way to navigate their life and to engage in parts of their life. 
And I think that, you know, sex, like any other activity, I mean, humans do a lot of stuff to heighten the experience of something, you know, going to a concert and, you know, taking some Molly or Mm -hmm. um, taking melatonin to fall asleep. Like, exactly. That's can sleep like, you, you know, I take melatonin every night to fall asleep and I don't love that I'm dependent on it, but it's what allows me to function and live, makes my life livable. Yes. So if you apply that logic to every factor and don't treat sex as some like anomaly siloed part of your life, like it's just the same thing. Absolutely. And know too that we're, this is a very broad concept. I mean, the, we're not talking about like heavy, deep, you know, BDSM play. I mean, this could just be simply... People just, you know, being intimate and holding each other and doing very, um, you know, less severe acts of sex. I mean, it doesn't have to be this archaic thing that we're talking about. Right. So, it's not some, like, dungeon, like, you know. I, right. I, I'll say, and my boyfriend's going to laugh at me for this, we, <laughs> my boyfriend and I, like, took an edible once and just laid and kissed for an hour. That was it. We were completely clothed, just kissed. For, and we were like, that was the most romantic thing we've ever done. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it doesn't have to be, you know, uh, to the nth degree, like right. it can just be being close and cute and intimate. So I right. like that, that um, specification too, that you pointed out Yeah. Um, about the, the kind of like stepping back from it. If somebody mm-hmm. was interested in that, how is from what we know about how the brain works, is that an easy process? Is it hard? Is it, how does that work? Ooh, that's one of the hardest things in this kind of work. <laughs> so y- you said the magic words, stimulus. Mm-hmm. So, the hardest part in recovery, especially with some of this um, type of work with like either the chems or the sex in general, is the reality that when we pull that out of our lives, we're not going to get the same release. So there is a concept called neurochemical exhaustion. And what that means is that when you're engaging with a lot of stimulant use or things that provide um, impulse and um, you know stimulus, right? So when we flood these channels in our brain with this, it becomes so large that when we get normal activities in our lives going, it's not that same release. So I'm going to use an improper metaphor. It's like throwing the hot dog down the hallway. It's not going to hit either side of the walls. Right. But meth, what it does is it pumps out so much dopamine, unlike any other drug, that it widens this channel. So what is normally like a little like one-way street becomes mm-hmm. a super lane highway. Now when you're in recovery or you're trying to moderate that use, what you engage in that normally floods that channel, not going to do it. Right. And so that's that moment of this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel what I'm used to. So there's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of resentment or uh, guilt around sex in that because it's not feeling the same. Mm-hmm. So what we have to do is allow ourselves to shrink down that channel in our brain but also find value, find pleasure, reward in other things. Other things that can give you that release, knowing that it's not going to be the same as what this you know, substance can give you. Yeah, so some of it is like consciously being aware of the fact that like, you're not going to live up to that because it is a, a, a kind of, not synthetic because your brain is doing it, but, uh, you know, and I guess, I guess synthetic wouldn't be an inpro- inappropriate word. Mm-hmm. Um, hi, but then channeling that when you say other things do you mean like non-sexual things like you know other things that give you that kind of like like exercise or something that makes you feel 
pumped up and excited and then kind of teaching your brain to, f- to, to produce the, that dopamine naturally. That and just other sexual acts. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Um, in, I'm interested because we're kind of talking about chemsex um, and the use of the substances as only pertaining to sex. Is there a crossover with people that engage in chemsex and also engage in substances with other parts of their life? Um, and, and, and if so, um, when does that crossover happen? And if they're trying to take a step back, is there ways to do one or the other? Because we've talked about, um, we've had an episode on Suboxone and, and how that mm-hmm. you know treats substance dependency and things. Um, if somebody you know wants to not use substance in their daily life but still keep it for chemsex, how does somebody draw a barrier between that? Is there you know medical assistives that can can kind of help draw those lines? I'm just curious how that overlap is. Mm. Yeah, it does exist. I would say that so most use has some sense of purpose and value to it. It's like matching Lego pieces. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't meet that need, you don't really use it. Um, So there are a lot of people who engage in, let's say, uh, use of G or meth only in the context of sex, but not in anything else in their life, um, because that's where they're needing it for, that euphoria Mm -hmm. that they're looking it for. Now, in terms of the crossover, I I can see kind of what I was talking about before in terms of that like toxic masculinity, those that use it to work out every single day, things like that. We can see a little bit of that kind of crossover a little bit more there, because there's similar gains in this you know i'm more fit i'm more attractive ergo i have more sex kind of a thing um i'm more desirable so you know we could see a little bit of that um when other substances are in play unless they find some kind of connection to it it's going to stay where it is Mm -hmm. but at the same time i know individuals that when working on their own recovery from let's say g or meth they still like that sense of release during sex. And so we talk about, can cannabis do that? Mm -hmm. Cannabis is a lot healthier in the body than meth. Um, What can we do with that to gain some sense of still euphoria or release to get through those stigmas that we Mm -hmm. carry with us? So as a harm reductionist, and I said this to you the last time I was on the, um, the show, that I'll be there with my client. You know, if we can move away from that drug of choice being meth and implement cannabis in there, that that's not much of an addiction on there for you. Let's try that out. Let's see what happens. But for anyone going from that type of sexual and substance use connection to nothing, that's a sudden plunge Mm -hmm. and something needs to be there. Right. Right. So it might, it might be more um, substitutions and alternatives rather than just like, not or you know doing something or not doing something etc yeah interesting yeah and another thing too is that just in in terms of the uh, brain chemistry when we are pulling away from some of that stimulant use we tend to still want stimulus we want impulse so a lot of my clients will start engaging in a little bit more risky more public sex they're not using but it's still giving them risk, it gives them danger. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that we need to be aware of is that we're coming off this psychoactive stimulant drug that gives us that sense of release and pleasure and excitement. The brain likes that. And so it's gonna still kind of want those activities Mm -hmm. somewhere. Gotcha. that does make sense that, you know, the, the thrill of it can be replicated in other ways. Um, 
I'm interested in in additional harm reduction strategies beyond what we talked about consent because I feel like there are some risks involved just that I've heard of like um, I think it's like like if you were doing like poppers and like on also on Viagra or something uh, there's like risks as far as that's concerned yes. I can see um, risks as far as any time a needle's involved um, I know I mean everybody's been out and about in boys town and if you see you know a gay with an apple watch that the alarm goes off and they're only drinking red bull like they're taking strategies harm reduction strategies to make sure their use of g uh is in check and is safe so what are some uh examples of that with the various substances to make sure that people are doing this in the safest way possible totally my favorite thing to talk about so yeah. Start, let's start with poppers. You're totally right. So poppers is what's called a vasodilator, which is a dilating the blood flow. So it's letting the blood flow a lot faster. That gives us that rush that we like from the poppers. And when you're using that with another vasodilator like Viagra, we go into some really dangerous cat, uh, world. Um, heart problems, erection issues, you know, we, that is a very um, treacherous world to go into. So I really suggest being aware of the dosage, talking to your doctor about that or trying to moderate a lower dose of the poppers rather than keep on hitting it. Mm -hmm. um, also, because of that vasodilation, it's increasing that blood flow down in the rectum. So if we're inserting things and we're not being too careful, we got a, a blood fissure. We can, you know, rupture something down there. Um, so that's the big key thing with poppers there. Gotcha. Um, in terms of meth use, so it depends on how we're using it. So if we're slamming it, which is injecting it, we want to make sure that we've got the clean syringes and needles. We want to make sure that we're not sharing. Um, we want to make sure that we are also looking at what site we're using it. We don't want to blow out any veins. Mm -hmm. um, so very typical things that we would say for any needle use. Um, but when it comes to meth, we also have to think about the psych symptoms. And that's the unique thing about this. So I mentioned that word overamping. So when somebody's getting close to what's considered an overdose with meth, they get spikes in the body temperature. They might see hallucinations. They might experience some paranoia. This is stuff that a lot of people don't know how to handle. Mm -hmm. So in that prep work, I talk about making sure that you have a space for the sexual activity and then a space for cool down. That cool down space should be dimly lit, maybe some soothing music, um, snacks, comfortable <laughs> pillows and blankets, something to bring the body down because it's overamping, yeah. right? Um, the other thing too to think about is making sure there's plenty of water, nothing that's gonna dehydrate you. So alcohol, coffee, let's not have them there because it's gonna dehydrate it and make the psych symptoms possibly um, more intense. And same thing with the G like you're mentioning, we wanna be aware of what we're drinking and eating on G because that can actually push it faster through our system. So we wanna be aware of when we're taking things and eating things on G because it can kind of push it when we're not expecting it. Interesting. Or it can also increase the toxicity within the system, which can further lead to a possible overdose. So being aware of any other substance that we're mixing with as well as our own nutrition is really gonna help us prevent any kind of risk when it comes to that. Yeah, in regards to G, cause that's the one that I see people use probably most frequently um, around here. What what are those substances that would you know increase the toxicity or make it move faster than you're anticipating? Cause I have seen people that you know are, are doing the timer and, and just drinking Red Bull. So they're, they think they're being safe, but then all of a sudden you turn around and, and they're not conscious. Um, or, or they're, yeah, they're losing feeling in their legs and can't walk properly, things like that. What, 
are the factors that would cause that, um, even if they think they're, you know, timing things appropriately and not mixing with alcohol. Yeah, so we have to remember it's a sedative. So anything that's going to bring down the system is going to be further impacted by that. So alcohol, mm -hmm. never mix that with alcohol. Um, things like heroin um, or even, you know, meth or K or cocaine, because they're already just toxic to the body, it's going to increase that toxicity. Gotcha. Cannabis is not really going to increase the toxicity there and all. But the caffeine, though, is the, the interesting thing. People want to think, oh, I'm going to counterbalance it, right? Um, much like people who are experiencing a high on a stimulant like meth, they want to bring themselves down. So they'll take G to kind of force the come down there. Yeah. But we're playing with chemicals in our brain. And what can happen, though, is we... Like uh, in the Red Bull situation, you're flooding all that synthetic caffeine to the body and it's increasing the absorption of everything within our intestines. Mm. So it's getting absorbed in, um, into the body even faster then. Gotcha. So we want to lay off any kind of caffeine stuff with that. That's going to just speed up our body process. Interesting. Okay. Um, I think that's a great kind of overall primer uh, on just like the most common substances that people might run into if they um, have engaged in chemsex or if they are interested in it. Um, because as we all know here, if we listen to the podcast, we are big proponents of harm reduction. And these are all strategies to make sure that if you're going to engage in something that you do it in a safe way. So uh, thank you for laying those all out. That's um, very, very important. But um, we're getting close to the end of our time here. Uh, I've learned a ton, and um, I think these are, especially to a large bulk of our audience, really important things to keep in mind. Um, any final kind of uh, th thoughts or take-home lessons that we can uh, impart to our listeners about chemsex uh, that you think are kind of important to keep in mind? I think first and foremost, let's just as humans recognize that sex should just be fun um, it shouldn't be judged. It shouldn't be stigmatized or looked at as taboo. It's something that we all, you know, many of us engage in, not all of us, of course, but many of us have throughout our existence. And the ways that we do it change based on our community and the times and things like that. And we have to also understand that sex is not easy for a lot of people. It brings a lot of trauma. It brings a lot of feelings that we're not fully prepared for a lot of the time. And so we need as humans to kind of sit with that. So we need to make space to talk about sex, but do it in healthy ways. You know, not these, you know, norms that I was talking about before and all that. We need to make space of the vulnerability in sex kind of a thing. So the way we do it, you know, as long as we're attempting to use harm reduction, attempting to be safe, we get consent, go for it. You know, you know try to do that as much as we can. Um, when we can't do that successfully, I think we need to stop and ask ourselves, am I still in control? You know, especially with some of these drugs that are so psychoactively um, influential on our brain, we need to be in control at all times. And so we need to remind ourselves, why am I doing this? How am I going to maintain my own boundaries with this? And then make a plan. Yeah. I love, I love that. Um, that summary. It, it occurred to me one final question as you were speaking um, if someone is engaging in chemsex and they uh, find things going south and they want medical help, is this something, and I think we kind of talked about this uh, with our episode on Narcan, um, is calling 911 or going to a hospital uh, the best option uh, if, you know, are, if somebody is scared of possible legal repercussions, how do you handle all of that? Oh, yeah. 
I think there are steps that we can take before we involve emergency services. And of course, there are times when we should do that. I think in the times that we should do that, let's start there, are the times when, like I said before, when we're overamped on a stimulant, our body temperature can increase in the upwards of 103 degrees. If we can't bring that body temperature down, we need medical attention. Um, one thing to plan around that, have ice bags. So you can put them under your armpits, on the back of your neck, ways to bring that body temp down. In terms of the paranoia and the hallucinations, if you call an ambulance, what they're going to do is they're going to take you to a triage room and have you just sit there mm-hmm. and just detox off the substance. They're not going to do anything with you. Yeah. Um, they might give you a benzo to calm you down, but that's it. So I think as much as we can do to build harm reduction around that space, like I was saying, having a space where we can cool down afterwards, but also just being there for each other. So if somebody is experiencing, let's say, a 50-foot dinosaur outside the window... <laughs> There's a 50-foot dinosaur outside the window. Right. We are not going to challenge them that because that's going to make it worse. Mm-hmm. So just sit with them in their experience. And it will subside, but it's going to take some time. Yeah. Um, that's all about that pre-planning and knowing who's in control, the drug or me. You know, mm-hmm. Because you'll know that that's what you're going to experience kind of a thing. Yeah. So, you know, rather than say, you know, give yourself a $1,500 ambulance visit and an ER visit to just be given a benzo to calm down, there's a lot that we can do in terms of harm reduction that be safe around this. I love that. Cause I, I, I asked because I know if I was in that situation, I would probably just panic and call 911 and then regret it later. So I love those practical techniques. And I also love what you said about uh, kind of just being with someone on their experience. If they're uh, experiencing um, hallucinations or, or visuals as someone call them. And it kind of struck me as the way some people tell you to approach like Alzheimer's patients of like, don't correct them uh, necessarily. Right. Like just acknowledge that that's what's reality to them right now. And, and kind of negate the negative impacts of it, but just be there for them. So um, I think, yeah, moral of the story, if we can all just kind of be there for each other a little bit, whether it's in chemsex or elderly people, we'll all, we'll all be better served. So um, after my final question, final, final, any other final words to impart? I can go all day long about this kind of stuff mm-hmm. and the nuances of it, but I think in a very general way, I think that was a lot of it. Good. So. Yeah, I just wanted this to be yeah. a primer to kind of introduce the vocabulary and kind of get people thinking about it. So Wonderful. Way. Joey, thank you so much for coming in again to talk to us about this. Thank uh, you. Maybe we'll shoot for a third episode on some other topic that you're an expert <laughs> in because I'm sure this isn't the last of it. So yeah, Joey, thank you so much. Thank you. And that has been our episode about ChemSex. If you are interested in any of the resources that Howard Brown offers in relation to this, you can go to www.howardbrown.org for more information. Thanks for listening.